Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 1, I think it's 856 if you're using a pew Bible. Luke 1, beginning in verse 46. This is Mary's song of praise, the Magnificat. What to speak on the day after Christmas? I thought it'd be good for us tonight. How do we respond to the blessings of Christmas? How should we respond to everything that we were blessed with yesterday, whether materially or otherwise? Mary's going to help us. Magnificat because she's magnifying. Latin, back in the early church days, they named things after the first few words. The Nuc Dimittis, we just talked about Zacharias' song. That's just because the first two words, same with tonight here, it's my soul magnifies. That's where the Magnificat comes from, the name of it. And it says, Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, literally slave. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy, not morally holy, but set apart, unique, there is no one else like him, is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. On Sunday afternoon, this past week, a couple days before Christmas, I got a call from Bob and Marilyn Fishman. And uh, Marilyn's mom had been bad for quite a while, health-wise, and she was dying. Um, She's 95. And so they asked me to come out and talk to her. And I did. And... uh, she had not talked for quite a while. She was very thin and feeble and was on air oxygen and was laying in a kind of a hospice bed in, their, in her room. So I walked in and she was, she was awake and she could, I could tell right away that she knew I was there. And so Marilyn told her who I was and why I was there. And so I took a chair and sat down real close to her, her face, and I just shared Jesus with her and told told her how much Jesus loved her. And I could tell that she was listening because her chest was starting to go up and down more. She was breathing faster, taking more oxygen in. And it was interesting because uh, Marilyn said she hadn't talked in quite a while, and that day she talked. And I asked her, I said, do you know Jesus loves you? And she said, she, she took a little bit of effort, she, yes. And I said, I said, do you know Jesus died for you, Ruth? And he rose again so that you could have eternal life. And you need, if you haven't done so, you need to put your trust in him. He's our only hope of heaven. And I said, have you ever done that? Are you trusting in Jesus? Are you going to die and go to heaven? And she said, again, yes. And, you know, for Marilyn, that was huge. Because I think she had talked to her so many times in her life. And early in the morning, on Christmas morning, she went to be with the Lord. And I thought about that. 
as I read an article that I had cut out, uh, or I actually copied off of the internet a couple days earlier. And then the title of the article is, The Lord Gave Us a Casket for Christmas. In the story, without reading it in its entirety, I, I highlighted some things I wanted to share with you tonight. It's about a family this year, this month, in the first week of December. Um, they had a six-month-old child that they left on the bed, and they were, gonna, they were changing it. I think the wife went down st- stairs or something for a minute to come, uh, do something and come back. And when she came back, her child was dead. And they tried to revive the child, obviously didn't work. And, and the, it was SID, Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. They, they really don't know why that happens, um, but in just a matter of minutes, the child had gone on to be the Lord. And this guy who writes the article um, pastors in a church called Riverdale, and he wrote, he was gone by the time my wife found him. He was likely, likely gone while we were downstairs in our dining room singing the Psalms and reading from the Baptist Confession about our relationship to God as creatures. He could have very well been gone when we prayed over supper, thanking God for his good gifts and asking all that he gives uh, would be turned back to him in praise and thanksgiving. He said, exactly three weeks to Christmas Day, God decreed to take my home and flip it upside down. Twelve days before Christmas, we lowered my son's casket into the cold, hard December ground. And then he says this, and I've never been looking forward to Christmas more in my entire life. And then he says, no, seriously, never. Not when I was six, he says, when I looked forward to the stockings and the presents under the tree. Not when I was a teenager and knew that I would likely finally get that guitar I had asked for for so long. Not even my last Christmas, she said, when, he said, when my daughter was finally old enough to get what being excited about Christmas is all about. He says, no, now I can't wait. Now I finally get it. Now it doesn't matter how many presents are under the tree. Nor does it matter how excited my kids do or don't get to, as they call up uh, and open all the presents under the Christmas tree. He says, now I finally know what it looks like to have your soul open and laid bare. I know what it feels like to have all of your plans that you arrogantly form and all your accomplishments smashed to pieces. I know what it feels like to have nothing to hold on to but the goodness, mercy, and sovereignty of God. I now know what it's like to be gifted with the peace of God, which passes all understanding. I know exactly what it means to believe that all things work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. I know what it means to find true sustaining hope in the future of the resurrection. And I was blessed with the strength of the opportunity to preach these truths and hope they contain and the hope that they contain over the casket carrying my son's body at his funeral. He said, I finally get the incarnation. It was the beginning of the road to resurrection. He says a few more words, and then he goes on to say, there are two precious first Christmas outfits in a drawer that will sit in silence. He says, but in, light of all, in spite of all of that, our hearts will be heavy, but we are not without hope and without comfort. This Christmas, I understand why the incarnation matters. I understand what it means. I understand the hope it communicates to my family as we ache and grieve for our son who is no longer here. And so it is, and how it goes, that God strikes down and so he builds up. God took away one of the greatest gifts he had given us, 
and did so right before Christmas. And for the first time in my life, I actually understand. So I will sing, wrap gifts, and wait with a resurrected anticipation. How do you say that? You say that when you know how to respond to Christmas. See, the pastor, Eric, he knows what Christmas is about. He knows why Jesus came. He knows what the incarnation means. And even when he's given a casket for Christmas, you know what he can say? I can still sing, I can still bless, and I can still praise the Lord, even though the gifts that he gives me at times are very, very difficult. See, Mary knew that. Mary had been given a gift from God. She was his highly favored one. And although it would ruin her reputation and she didn't know what Joseph would think or her family or her community or whether she would live or die as a result of all the things God was asking her to do, Here's what her response is to what the angel says. Would you be able to do this? Would you say this if you knew all the implications of what God had asked you to do? And you're part of his story. She starts off with this. My soul magnifies the Lord. And then she says, and can I point it out to you if you look in the text? She says, my spirit. Now these are parallel statements. That's why it's not a teaching that soul and spirit are somewhat different. This is what's going on in the inner core of Mary's being. This is what she's saying from the very heart and the essence of who she is. This is what she wants you to know, that the Christmas message that's been given to her and her personal responsibility, this is how she responds to Christmas blessings. My soul magnifies the Lord. And how do you do that? Ready? The parallel statement says, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. But let me tell you this. The word magnify is a compound word. Mega luno. You know what it means? Big light. (laughs) We would translate it to declare something or someone to be great. Right? Draw your, your pen, if you have a pen, or at least in your mind, draw this down. Look down, it says, my soul magnifies, verse 46. And then it says down in verse 49, for he who is mighty, or literally the mighty one, has done great things for me. And that's the same prefix, it's the same word, mega, great, mega things. That's the Greek word. They are the same thing. So here's what responding to Christmas should be like. Great blessings from God should require great blessings to God, right? Or for God, right? So when God blesses us greatly, we should bless him greatly back. That's why the words mega are there. I declare God to be great. You know why? Because he has done great things for me. Can we stop just for a minute tonight before we go anymore? Anywhere you want. One sentence, one word. Can you tell something at Christmas this year or Someone out, out somewhere, um, some other time during the year, something great God has done to bless you. Just say it. Go ahead. Raise your hand and say it. Anyone saved in here? Go ahead. Yes. Say it. Orvin's health. Yes. All the things that he's gone through. Right. Three. Answered prayer. Bev. Yes, that's right. Bev almost went to be with the Lord, but we still have her for hopefully quite a while. Someone else. Great blessings. Yes. Yes. Lots of that, right? Your dad's health. I know you're going to say it, right, Tim? Sorry, I shouldn't have took that away from you. Anyone else? 
I have one. I'll tell you more about it. You know, my, both my sons, um, especially Will, Lance, I should say, who for years didn't care anything about the things of God, they're both in the youth ministry tonight in that building over there. And I, can't still, I still can't get over all that. It's a great thing to me. Um, Tim. Mm. And um, she's still has pain, but she's keeping her two grandchildren. Amen. And she's been able to do that, you know, in, in all the bad things. Yep. It's a big thing. Amen. Dennis has one. He told me on the phone today. It's about this big. Oh, you twin. <laughs> he has a granddaughter running around all the time. I'm jealous. I want one. <laughs> I asked for it for Christmas next year, but who knows? <laughs> Great blessings. Someone else. Great God, right? Anyone else? Yes. A what? Oh, your cousins. Okay, good. Amen. Mega God deserves mega praise. Now, Mary's song, and that's what these are. They're Christmas songs. Zacharias is one. And Mary has one, and, and, and they're singing praises to God because of his powerful deliverances. Now, that's, doesn't, that's nothing new. In fact, it's one of many in history. Moses did that in Exodus 15, and so did Miriam, his sister, after God delivered them from Egypt in the Exodus. Deborah did it after her victory in Judges 5. Hannah, when she couldn't have children and God gave her a son, Samuel, she writes a song of praise in 1 Samuel 2. Asaph did it. After God gave him a great victory in 1 Chronicles 16, David wrote a song of praise to God in Psalm 40. I mean, there's just so many of them in the Bible about praising God. And so Mary says, I don't know how this is all going to happen. Listen, you don't have to wait to figure out how it's all going to turn out in the end, do you, to bless God? Do you have to praise God? Can you praise God for 2019 before it happens? Absolutely can. We don't, Mary doesn't know how all this is going to work out. She's been encouraged by spending a little bit of time with Elizabeth, right? But we don't know where this year is going. I don't know where it's going to be, what's going to happen. But you know what? I praise God and I magnify God. Now, let me tell you, there are two ways to magnify something. My worst subjects, I don't know about you, I was good at things that you could just read it. I was history, um, that sort of thing, grammar, English. I, I, I was terrible at science and math. So, but I do know enough, and, and, and I'm glad you're here tonight, because I, if I'm wrong, please correct me. But a microscope is one way to magnify something. Am I good so far? All right. Now, you put something, I know you put one of those little plates down there, and you can look at things that are very, very small. And when you look at them through the microscope, that they become really, really big. They're magnified. That's what it does. So something that's small you can make it look bigger than it really is. That's one way that you magnify. A second way to magnify, and I've never had one of these, but I've looked through people who had one, is not a microscope, but a, a telescope. Now, when you go out in the sky tonight, uh, hopefully you'll be able to see, but you look out there and you'll see stars. Now, they look what? Very, very small. But when you get a telescope... They make something that's really big look as, start to look as big as it really is. And the stronger the telescope, 
the more accurate that you be able to see how big it is. Now, our sun is just a very medium-sized star. There are suns that are bigger than our star as much as our sun is bigger than the earth, which is 30,000. Can you imagine a sun 30,000 times bigger than our sun? Now, that's crazy. But if you could get a big enough telescope, right, you could see, finally see how big it, but when the sky at night, it looks like this little pin thing, the little dot, right? See, listen, everybody in here is magnifying God. But you've got to ask yourself the question, in which way do you magnify him? See, in our world, God seems very small and unimportant and insignificant. Right? And so sometimes when people look through the lens of your life, see, God is real small. So the question is, does he look as small as he really is to people as they look at you? Or are you more like a telescope? When you look through that, do people look through your lives and say, oh, I thought God was so small. But look at their lives. Look how big he looks because of the way that they live their lives and the choices that they make. See, Mary says, here's what I want in my life. Here's how I respond to Christmas. I want God to be as big in my life so other, people's can, other people can see it as he really is. To most people, he's small and insignificant. But when they look through my life and how I respond to God's word, I want them to see God and make him as big as he really is. Sometimes... Unfortunately, we do the opposite, I'm afraid to say. God is really, really big, huge, important, valuable. But too many times Christians, by the choices they make in the lives they live, they make God look as if he's insignificant, that he's really small. Sometimes it's because we make other things bigger than they should be. I know because I did this. My whole life, up until 10th grade, sports was everything to me. And God was this big in my life. And I did a good job on Sundays and Wednesdays with him. But the rest of my week, sports was this big superstar out here. And God was this little teeny planet over here. See, I did that. And, and by doing that, I made sports look big when it should be small. And I made God look small when he should be really big. And there's all kinds of ways. We can do that with our money and our possessions. And sometimes it's our job because we think we have to work all this overtime to pay for these things and the maintenance on these things and to keep all this stuff up and going. And our outward appearance and how we look and the name brand clothes we have to have. And sometimes we do it because we value what is small in comparison. On the outside, we value talent and abilities, not because it's wrong to have them. But we devalue and make really less important character and integrity and the things that matter the most in our love for Jesus. And we value sometimes education and all the things that it gives to us and the value and the future that it gives for our job and our career. Not because they're not important at all, but when God is concerned, he's this big and they should be this big in comparison. But usually because of the choices we make, we flip it. And he's not magnified. In fact, he's demagnified. And in the verse, Mary says, in parallel, my soul magnifies the Lord. Pastor Walker, how can I know whether I am magnifying God and making him to be as really big as he ought to be in my life? Here you go. Here's one example. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Those are parallel statements. So let me put it together for you. You magnify God by what you find the most joy in. 
See what she's saying? She's saying, my soul, my spirit, rejoices in God, my Savior. See, God is the center of my joy. And when God is the center of your joy and nothing else or no one, in other words, you have a solar system in your soul, and if God is the center of it, and everything revolves around him. See, my wife, my kids, my family, my job, my, my possessions, everything revolves around him. See, he's the center, and he keeps everything in its proper order in my galaxy, right? And that's when I know that I magnify him. But listen, when I take him out of the center and I put my planet there and my values and my desires and my priorities and my calendar, see, the whole thing falls apart because only God at the center has enough God gravity to keep it all in the proper order and orbit. So Mary says, you know what? I find my joy in God, not in my circumstances, not in what happens to me because I find my joy in God, No, because my joy is in God. So I magnify God. How do I do it? By finding the source of my joy in him as my Savior. As my Savior. Can I go a little bit further? Psalm 34, 3 says, parallel statement again. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Ready? Let us exalt his name together. Right? So here's how we magnify God. What we magnify God when we do everything in our lives together as a church that lifts him up. So the diagnostic question we ask ourselves to evaluate our lives is this. What does my life rejoice in? What is it that is constantly being lifted up and exalted and made most important in my life? And when you answer that diagnostic question, you will know the real truth about what you magnify what is really what you're making to be really big in your life. And let me tell you this, your kids already know. No matter what you say, what you want to tell other people, they know what you're magnifying. They know what is really big in your life, what everything stops for, what everything changes for, what everything stands still, this is going to be it. And there's no changing it. See, your kids know that already. In your life. Mary says, I want it to be the Lord. I want to find my joy in him. The psalmist says, I want to lift up his name, whatever has to do with him, and I want to do it with everybody else who's exalting him as well. I want to do it together with God's people. For he has, now look in the text grammatically, verse 48 says, here's her reasoning. In verses 48, 49, and 50, she's going to say, you know why I respond like I do to Christmas? Because God has done great things for me. And then the last half of the text, he's done great things for Israel. Can you look right here for a second? I want to tell you something. Hard to grasp because American individualism is so dominant. In the Bible, in Israel, and in, in ancient Israel, and other societies like it, people weren't about me in their in their social standing and status and culture and their worship. They did not put themselves first. So Mary's going to tell you, listen, you know why I magnify him? 
He has done great things for me. It's not that there isn't individual status or importance. It is there. But it's always embedded. The me is always embedded in a we. That's why she says this. Here's what he's done for me. And let me tell you this. He can do it for you. And beyond me, you know what he's doing? He's doing this through me for everyone else. She could not help but see her story and what God was doing as part of a bigger story that was way bigger than her. See, she made choices about me that fit with we. You see how that works? You can't find joy in God without that. You can't. If you make isolated choices for you and your children and your family based on you and not considering God or his family, you've made bad choices. Mary says, here's what God has done for me. And the reason he did it for me was not just for me. No, because what he did for me is going to impact everyone in Israel. And that's what he's after. It's not just me. It's we. So keep that in mind as she talks. She says, For he has looked on the humble estate of his slave. And if you didn't get how important this is to her, she puts the little word behold in there, which is used ten times in Luke 1 and 2. And it means look at this and be amazed. For behold... From now on, even though I was humble and my social status is way down here, female, poor, peasant, I'm way down here. God has brought me way up here because from now on, you know what the generations to come will call me? Blessed. Oh, yeah, I was way down here and God brought me way up here. Now, watch, listen. Well, that's great, Mary, because you had Jesus as your son, okay? That's not happening for me. Ready? She includes you and me in this. Ready? Ready? For he who has mighty has done great things for me, holy in his name. And look at verse 50. And his mercy, which by the way is what he, she wasn't better than anybody else. You know what, why Mary was chosen? Because God's merciful. And his mercy is for those who what? Fear him from generation to generation. So Mary says, don't look at me and think I'm blessed and God chose me, this poor peasant girl who's a slave in the Roman Empire, to be the mother of the Son of God. Don't look at me and think that, wow, I'm great because all I am is what I just told you. But God lavished his mercy on me and brought someone down here, up here. And by the way, if you fear him and worship him and make him the center of your life, he can do that for you. He can do it for anyone who will fear his name. So she says to them, here's what he did for me. He reversed my status. He changed everything. Now watch. And he's going to do the same thing for Israel. In the last few verses, before we conclude tonight, I want you to see, watch how she makes these contrasts, okay? The opposites of one another. Here's what she says. He has shown his strength in his arm. He has scattered the proud. See the first contrast? I'm humble. I'm lowly. And you know what God does? He pushes them up and exalts them. You know what he does to the proud people? He scatters them because in their mind, they think they don't need him. They're arrogant. So don't be like that. Don't think that on a Sunday night or a Wednesday night, I don't need to be here. My kids don't need to be here. You know what that is? It's arrogant. Here's what he says. 
Don't be like those people who think in their heart, it doesn't matter if I'm here. It doesn't matter. No, it matters. It matters if we're here. It matters if God is the center of everything. He says it matters. It's the humble people, the dependent people, the people who absolutely think that I can't go a day, I can't take a breath, and my heart can't beat another time apart from him. He says, she says, So here's the first humble pride contrast. And then he says, watch, he says again, verse 52, he's brought down the mighty. People who think they have power and position like Pharaoh, like all those guys who are at the top of the ladder. You know what he does? He has a habit of bringing down those mighty people from their thrones. And you know what he does for the slaves? And he says the same word. She says it again, humble estate. He takes those slave people and puts them up. See how he does? Up, down, down, up. A reversal. A reversal. Verse 53. Hungry people he fills up. But people who are already full, rich people who have everything in their mind and they don't need God, you know what he does? He sends them away empty. See it? Hungry, empty. They're full, empty. See the contrast? That's what God is like. And let me tell you this. If you've never read Luke before through these eyes, you need to. Because our God is a God of reversals. Jesus talks in the Sermon on the Mount and he says, blessed are you, and then he has the ends, woe are you. And you would be shocked what a blessing is and what a judgment is. And they're the opposite of what you might think. Because God is a God of reversal. Remember the Pharisee who has Jesus over for lunch? And he thinks he's all this and prim and proper. And the girl, who, the woman who comes in, that kind of woman who washes Jesus' feet with her hair and wipes him with her tears. and Remember all that? Who was Jesus impressed with? Not the Pharisee. It was the woman because God has a way of reversing things. Jesus tells a story of the Jewish man who was attacked and left half dead on the side of the road. You know who the hero is? Not a priest. He walks by on the other side. Not a Levite. The, the one, know what he does? He reverses it and says, who's the hero? Oh, the Samaritan. And then he has the gull to attach the word good to it. Nobody puts oxymoron, good Samaritan. That doesn't make any sense, right? Good politician. It doesn't happen, right? United Methodist. It doesn't happen. And the Bible goes on in Luke to say, the rich man and Lazarus, they both died. Who do you think the average person in that day thought was going to heaven and who was going to hell? Well, it's reversed. The rich man is in torment and the poor beggar man is in Abraham's bosom. Who would have thought? Ten lepers who get healed by Jesus. Only one comes back. Who had the humility and love for Jesus to come back? Not a Jew. Samaritan. Reversal. Zacchaeus, Jesus can eat anywhere with anyone in Jericho he wants. And he eats with Zacchaeus. And everybody gets mad because Jesus wants to have lunch with a sinner. He says, salvation has come to your house today. The widow who puts in two little pennies. And Jesus has the nerve to say, and she's put in more than all of them. What a reversal that she could put in so little, but Jesus would think it would be so much. They put two men in front of the Jewish crowd that day on Passover. You'd think they'd choose Jesus, but they don't. It's crazy, a reversal. Instead, they choose Barabbas because that's how God works. The first ones to the empty tomb, 
not the disciples, not Peter and John, women. Women whose witness and culture was not accepted. Women were to the tomb first. And Peter and John go in and they don't believe. But the Bible says the women believed. Crazy, isn't it? How the disciples who spend all this time with Jesus, they don't believe, but the women believe. You know why? Because who is our God? He's a God of reversals. And can I tell you this as we look forward to 2018? He can do the same for you. I have seen it. I have seen God reverse my son's lives. I have seen Justin Black, who was a gang member, become a church member. I have seen Ted Levesky, who has sat in a hospital room while his wife was pregnant, about to have her baby, and he doesn't show up to see her, and there's no money to feed his wife and child because he's spending it on drugs. And I told him so. He's sitting there, I'm sitting here, and I said, what kind of person are you that you don't even care about your wife and your child to come and you're still taking drugs? So he takes his wedding ring off and throws it at me. And then a month later, Ted Levesky gave his life to Jesus and it all turned around, all of it. Bill Zoller told me that he wanted to talk to me about certain things and arguments because he was an atheist, but he didn't want to talk about Jesus. And I told him, well, I won't talk about what you want unless I can talk about what I want. So we'll argue all your points, and at the end, you've got to give me 10 minutes to talk about Jesus. And he agreed. And on the third time that we talked, he started asking me, hey, could we start with Jesus next time? And about five times in it, Bill Zoller trusted Christ and became a deacon in his church. I've seen it. I know it can happen. God, in his rich mercy, can turn people's lives around. He does that because he's the God of reversals. You might be here tonight and you think, oh, Pastor Walker, I think God has forgotten me. I think that he's forgotten my situation and the family I have and the difficulties I face and what takes place in my job and in my life. Do you know what Zacharias' name means in this text? His name means God remembers. You know what the last verse says? Mary says, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Verse 54, in remembrance of his mercy. God hasn't forgotten you. You know how long it's been since God talked? 400 years. Does it feel like that long sometimes? God when are you going to remember me? How about some reversal in my life? Time passes and nothing changes. I've been there. I know. But God remembers. It's who he is. You know what Simeon's name means? God hears. Can I tell you this? He hasn't turned a deaf ear to you unless you've forgotten him. He still hears and he still remembers and he is still the God who can bring people who are up, down, and people who are down, up. And he can change people's lives. He can reverse everything in a moment of time because our God is true to his word if you will be true to him. He wants to know, will you magnify me? I mean, in everything. I mean, not just at church or sometimes or when it's easy to make those calls. 
But will you, will you make me the center of your joy, the center of your life, the center of your marriage, your family, your finances, everything? Will you make me to look as big as I really am? Are all your choices making me look small, unimportant in your life? I would pray this year individually and together that we would together dedicate our lives to this one cause, to magnify the Lord in everything, because I can tell you this, he is as big as he really says he is. Amen? Let's pray. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. That's what the psalmist says. You are the mega God. There's no one bigger, no one wiser, no one stronger, no one holier, no one more loving than our God. And you deserve mega praise. You deserve a life that will not ignore your sacrifice in Jesus. You deserve lives that are consecrated and holy and obedient. Lives that are conspiring and imagining how we could do more for Jesus and be with him more and give more and do more. God, our world and everyone around us at our jobs that we go to tomorrow, they think you're so small and unimportant, but may they see through a different lens. The lens of Christians at Faith Baptist Church, disciples who say, no, he's big. He's bigger than anything you can imagine. Look at my life and see it and all my choices, small and great. Father, be the center of our universe, be the center of our joy, and together may we exalt Jesus because he is a great, great God. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.